So today we're going to be talking about issues around the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And we're going to be talking about a specific paper. But before we jump in, I was wondering, Donovan, if you would give us just a really simple overview of what we need to know, like from a really high level perspective, we're talking like Wikipedia, maybe even the first paragraph of Wikipedia, what we need to know about amyloid, uh, the biology of Alzheimer's and how it gets diagnosed in clinic. Okay, so maybe first paragraph of Wikipedia would be something like uh, most people with dementia have some types of proteins in their brain that end up kind of clumping up in ways that they're not supposed to. In Alzheimer's dementia, generally, those are kind of two types that you hear of most commonly. So uh, beta amyloid plaques, which accumulate outside of the neurons in the brain, and then tau tangles that clump up inside. Um, most people with Alzheimer's will have some combination of, of those two kinds of proteins. Um, however, it's not super information to actually help make the diagnosis. Usually it's something that you actually see on uh, autopsy. Um, there are some tests of, uh, say, of uh, if you have a lumbar puncture, you can actually look at the ratio that you see in the spinal fluid um, but rarely is that part of uh, how people uh, make a diagnosis, except for in sort of like fancy academic medical centers. Um, these proteins can start to accumulate in people, which is what uh, we're going to talk about a little bit today. So amyloid, um, you can have amyloid, lots of amyloid in people who don't have dementia, uh, or you can people have who have dementia with very little bit of amyloid. So it seems like these uh, amyloid uh uh, plaques and tau tangles are part of the Alzheimer's story, but they definitely aren't the entire story. Yeah. One of our early names for this podcast was Untangling Tau. I think Julie Vining came up with, but then we realized that was a little too basic science for yeah. sort of a more population-based yeah. uh, center. That's great. Why don't we, um, should we jump into it? Sure. I'm Matt Davis. I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Minding Memory. So today we're joined by Ken Lenga, a leader in the field of dementia research. Dr. Lenga is the Cyrus Sturgis Professor of Medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School. He's a research professor at the Institute for Social Research and Professor of Health Management and Policy at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. And I would add to that a wonderful mentor to many emerging scholars at the university. I'm always amazed at just how many successful researchers have at one point or another been mentored by you. So Ken, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here with you and Donovan, and especially without a mask on. Thank you. A year or so ago, Dr. Lenga authored a commentary paper with Dr. Jim Burke that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine. The paper was titled Preclinical Alzheimer's Disease, Early Diagnosis or Overdiagnosis? The paper discusses some of the issues regarding the identification and treatment of preclinical Alzheimer's disease. So I recall being exposed to issues for what's been called overdiagnosis early in my public health training, specifically around cancer. Some of these concepts fundamentally changed what I thought I knew about healthcare. Hence, Ken's paper got my attention as it brought some interesting issues to light specifically for Alzheimer's. You know, there's this notion among the public that diagnosis is always helpful. However, at the population level, sometimes there can be effects that aren't always beneficial. So with that, let's start talking about the paper. So Ken, you mentioned in your article that there's been a shift from focusing on interventions around treating symptomatic Alzheimer's to more prevention-based interventions. And I think the idea here is to try to catch things early to stop the disease from progressing. 
Now, if any of my students are listening in, this is an example of secondary prevention. So what's your sense for why this shift has occurred? Well, it, um, there's been a number of uh, important trends over the last 20 years or so in terms of just the technologies that can um, be used to try to identify some of those, uh, the proteins that Donovan was talking about uh, early on, the amyloid and tau, uh, specifically what we'll talk about most today. So as Donovan said, uh, 20, 25 years ago, you could only look look for those proteins after someone died, uh, you know, at autopsy. But new imaging techniques, especially amyloid imaging, uh, amyloid PET imaging, tau PET imaging, um, have allowed uh, us to see the abnormalities in the brain uh, while someone's alive and uh, and also while someone is uh, thinking absolutely normally. So um, just the ability to be able to look now for um, abnormalities in the brain before someone has symptoms, that's one of the things that have shifted uh, the focus more toward um, toward earlier in the disease process. And frankly, I think the other important uh, development over the last 20 years is the failure of lots of um, the treatment trials for symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. So there's basically been uh, no successful trials of, of interventions when treating people uh, first with dementia, symptomatic dementia, uh, mild cognitive impairment, sort of, uh, you know, mild symptoms uh, before someone becomes uh, disabled with, uh, with dementia. The interventions there have just not worked. So the theory has been kind of to move earlier and earlier in order to, to intervene before the brain is damaged enough that, you, that it won't work anymore. And a lot of those interventions have focused on amyloid, right? The idea that uh, if you have amyloid accumulating, if you can get rid of the amyloid, that would help the dementia. But that hasn't really panned out, right? Right. And again, I think we'll we'll come back to that. Is the is the question of uh, what is the right target? Amyloid, tau, other pathologies. But as Donovan said, uh, many of the um, interventions have been uh, focused on trying to either prevent amyloid from building up or actually removing amyloid um, from from the brain and uh, under the theory that amyloid is you know part of this causal pathway that's uh, if you can stop that you can stop the uh, the progression so the idea that amyloid there's sort of like a dose response thing that you get to a point I mean both of you mentioned autopsies I mean do healthy people have a little bit of amyloid? Right. This is kind of almost sounds almost like the, the things you hear about with prostate cancer. People have everybody has a little bit of abnormal prostate cells. You, you and I probably have amyloid, Matt. Almost okay. certainly. All right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that will be, uh, again, a key issue uh, in terms of the, the question of overdiagnosis. It's this idea that, you know, how tightly linked is the pathology that you're picking up to the bad thing that you want to prevent down the road? So, as Donovan said, um, you know, the population studies now suggest that um, lots of people uh, um, have amyloid in their brain. Maybe 30% of uh, folks who are 50 and older is, uh, uh, is a number we cite in, in that article. So, so the issue is um, this bad pathology is not always linked, tightly linked with bad things down the road. And that's, that's a key issue for, for the discussion of overdiagnosis. You mentioning that like some of the, the trials haven't really panned out, like treating people with symptomatic Alzheimer's and that, that in part sort of is causing the shift towards treating more preclinical, we might call it. I find that really interesting because it feels like it'd be harder to find effects 
when you have smaller levels and potentially outcomes that are much longer down the road. But I guess we'll see what happens, right? Uh, that's exactly right, Matt. Yeah. And the, you know, it's in some ways the the theory is kind of the, my simplistic way of thinking about it is the, you know, the horse out of the barn kind of uh, concern that once someone's symptomatic with dementia or Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, their brain is kind of on a, on a pathway that's going to lead down, even if you, even if you intervene. So the horse is out of the barn. If, if you, um, you know, can get at the pathology, stop the pathology from building up, the amyloid from building up um, early on while there are no symptoms and the brain is working better, maybe that's what, you know, maybe that's the key to preventing it. So just taking a step back, I mean, for most, for many people that are probably listening to this, like you, you sort of make some assumptions that, you know, detecting something early is always a good thing. Like, why wouldn't you want to know as early as possible so that you could do something about it? So what do we actually know about this? And, and what are your thoughts on sort of the early detection of some of these early signs and symptoms? Great question. And again, I think gets to the the heart of, uh, of this discussion. You, you know, in some ways you think about how, how could more information be a bad thing um, as we're treating patients or, or really in any aspect of life? How is it that um, you know, you do a test, it gives you a bit more information about the state of your brain or the state of the world. How can that be a bad thing? Um, and so there are a few different ways that, um, you know, unintended consequences can happen from, from doing tests and, and, um, and picking something up. And, and it might make sense actually to, to maybe define overdiagnosis uh, at this point uh, to hopefully make this clearer. So the idea of overdiagnosis is um, that you are diagnosed with or categorized with something that won't cause you symptoms and won't cause death. So it's, it's picking up an abnormality, but that abnormality, again, wouldn't, uh, intervening on that abnormality wouldn't change anything in your health or length of life. And so how can that happen? Uh, typically, it would be uh, screening procedures, screening tests, where you're again you're you're purposely going out and testing people that don't have uh, symptoms uh, in order to pick up a pathology that again by intervening on you think will do um, will do good things in terms of uh, preventing symptoms or preventing death. Uh, and the other is what sometimes is called an incidentaloma, uh, or you know where you're doing a test for another reason and you pick up an abnormality, and um, at that point. Uh, you start acting on that abnormality, even though if you hadn't found it, it wouldn't have uh, created problems down the road. So again, how can it be bad to, to do a test and to, uh, to diagnose something early? Again, if what you're identifying is tightly linked with a bad thing down the road um, and there's an intervention to um, address it, then the early information is going to do good things. Um, again, it, it's this balance of is that information um, going to allow you to intervene in a in a way that will um, you know prevent a bad thing or or, or cause good things down the road? It, it seems like the issue here is um, early diagnosis that relies on the burden of amyloid just doesn't really reliably indicate whether you're going to go on to develop the disease or not, and so uh, there's some perhaps you're at higher risk, but ultimately then you're potentially freaking out a lot of people who would never go on to actually develop the illness. And so then uh, what's the cost involved with that? What's the psychological burden that's involved with that? 
um, is really the, the issue because the link between these abnormal proteins or the burden of these proteins just isn't that directly linked to the risk of actually developing the disease within a short period of time. Exactly. Yeah. And again, the um, putting a few numbers on this might uh, might be helpful here where, um, again, there's been a number of sort of modeling exercises and uh, using epidemiologic data where, um, you know, an estimate of for a 65 year old woman, for instance, who has who's uh, thinking normally, uh, but has amyloid, you know, shows up with a, a positive amyloid scan, um, her risk of developing Alzheimer's disease or, or dementia by the time she dies uh, is just around 30% or so, or even a little less than that. And for a, a man, it's lower than that, 20%, mainly because men uh, have shorter life expectancies. So that's, as, as Donovan said, uh, the key issue is this balance between um, identifying the abnormality, but if you're going to die of something else before that abnormality is going to know, cause a problem in your life, either symptoms or death, um, there's, uh, by paying attention to that abnormality, you really only get the costs and the potential side effects of interventions rather than the benefits. And of course, again, the, the key issue is, um, can you do tests that have a much, uh, you know, have a very tight link to the bad outcome, as, uh, as Donovan said. And I should say, you know, we're talking about amyloid, um, and that's the uh, the sort of imaging that has been developed and that's uh, been a focus of a lot of testing. There are new technologies, again, looking at tau, uh, looking at other kinds of proteins um, uh, in the brain or, or in the spinal fluid. And again, the, the hope is perhaps by putting a bunch of these different tests together, you get to that, uh, that holy grail of a, um, you know, a good um, measure that will allow you to better who's really uh, at high risk exactly who's who's really who are really the ones that um it makes more sense to do these interventions on so i mean do you think there's some value if it was theoretically possible to really hone down to a a very specific subset of people with a set of risk factors or something like that to actually make these things beneficial in that population um Yes. And, and again, these are all, these are going to be balanced. Uh, you're going to have to do trade-offs and balances uh, on both sides, both the, the diagnostic side and then also the treatment side. So again, just taking it, um, going to the extreme, you know, if you have an intervention that you know is beneficial and has no side effects and is cheap, uh, the idea of, you know, treating people that you're not as sure um, are going to go on to have dementia, for instance, uh, the risks are low, the costs are low. So that, um, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's yeah. worth it to do, even though you're probably treating a whole bunch of people that wouldn't go on to have dementia. So again, you know, thinking about, um, a, a very low risk vaccine, we're all thinking about vaccines these days. Uh, there have been vaccines treated for, or, um, tested for amyloid, you know, getting a vaccine to, to take the bad protein, uh, out of your brain, assuming, we could do a you know a one a one shot vaccine that did a great job of this. There were very few side effects, um, low cost. It's likely that we'd sign we'd, me up. Yeah, we'd err on the side yeah. of uh, doing diagnostic tests that even if they weren't perfect, um, we could intervene. The problem, of course, is uh, those kinds of very low cost, low risk interventions are rare, and uh, as well as the issue that. Um, as you were saying before, Matt, I think, or maybe it was Donovan, that um, 
you know, Alzheimer's disease and dementia happens late in life. And therefore, if you have to intervene early on in life, earlier on, say mid middle age in the fifties, um, you know, if it, it's an ongoing treatment, you're going to have to take it for decades. The risk of side effects increases, the costs increase, et cetera. So those, those are the um, things that you need to balance. How, how, um, how well can you risk stratify folks? Can you find the folks that are, that are truly going to go on to uh, dementia? Um, and what are the interventions that you have to, um, to intervene on them? I remember from epidemiology just sort of playing with how the prevalence affects performance when you talk about screening. It's like a great example of that, actually. That's right. So, um, so it sounds like there's, there's enormous cost implications in particular. And in terms of like side effects, stress, I mean, do people start, I mean, presumably, could people start undergoing treatments that have side effects? Yeah, great question again. And I think... Um... Yeah, another of the the key issues is what does this new information, like we said, how could how could information more information be a bad thing for patients and and uh, physicians? You know, if the if the information um, causes people to go on and do things uh, that they wouldn't have done um, that cause harm, that's obviously that's a bad thing. That's a bad outcome, especially if again the the abnormality isn't going to go on to cause problems in, in a significant number of people. So what, what kinds of things could that be? I mean, first, it's just um, people may end up spending more time going to doctors, um, uh, getting more tests, kind of getting into what's often called the, the clinical cascade, that once you're sort of identified with uh, a potential problem, um, Perhaps because you're more sensitive to uh, to symptoms, you end up maybe going to the doctor more to to check this out. So even if there's no direct harm from that, you know it's still time that you're not doing something else. So health economists would be uh, you know have that be one of the the costs of uh, this additional information. Um, you know it, it could be, and some people argue that this new information um, could cause people to. Uh, act in ways that are actually beneficial. So for instance, if you know you're at a bit higher risk for Alzheimer's disease or dementia, um, maybe you will um, exercise more or some of the other preventive uh, behaviors that uh, seem that we think are related to um, decreased risk for dementia later in life, you know, maybe having the, you know, the sort of picture, so to speak, of, uh, of amyloid in your brain. Some people think, well, maybe that'll actually be beneficial because it will motivate people um, or modifiable again, risk factors, right? Exactly. But, um, you know, again, there's the flip side. Will it just cause anxiety? Will it cause people to, to kind of do things or, or feel, uh, anxious about things, do other things that they, they wouldn't have done. I will say the, um, there's been a number of studies so far of kind of how bad does, uh, learning your amyloid status, um, make you feel, uh, Josh Grill and Jason Carlosch published a paper, uh, a year or two ago, looking at that from, from one of the clinical trials that going on, that it's going on. And they actually didn't find, at least in the short term with all the caveats, uh, you know, a selected population, probably more educated than, uh, than the regular popu uh, the general population, they didn't see a huge amount of anxiety or other kind of negative uh, psychological effects. But I, again, I, th I think that needs to get uh, studied a bit more. But again, those are the, the kind of trade-offs that we're, we're talking about. This is hard, you know. I, I mean, just, just thinking about like, 
I know some of the numbers that you were, that you were just mentioning about how, you know, people don't, they aren't destined to get Alzheimer's that may have some abnormal findings. It feels like we should rethink the name. I mean, pre-clinical or, or, you know, pre-diabetes, it, it feels like you're destined to get that thing. I don't know what the better name would be, but it feels like maybe that's one place to start. So yeah. everybody has those, but I don't think they're going to get it. That's right. No, I think that's absolutely a great, a great point, Matt. And, and there's been a lot of discussion of that, that, uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease in itself, um, you know, extremely um, causes fear. It, you know, rightly so. It's an awful, uh, awful disease. Causes uh, uh, awful uh, outcomes for for patients and families, etc. Um, and and thinking about preclinical Alzheimer's disease, uh, yeah, maybe that uh, maybe we're we're painting ourselves into a corner by uh, by calling it that. Well, this has been super interesting to think about some of these issues at sort of more of the population level. I, to kind of close things out, I'm hoping that we can maybe pivot back to sort of the patient level. Because I often wonder, you know, how often when you have these studies that come out that people are aware of and start thinking about these things, like how often does that actually change anything at the level of the patient? So from my understanding, it's not unusual for older adults to be pretty fearful about having cognitive issues later. And when I think about that, that's like... I could see that. That's, it's got to be a horrible thing to think about potentially losing memories of loved ones and those relationships that life is all about. Donovan, you, you've done some work looking at this, right? Yeah. So we um, actually did a poll. That Ken was involved in through the National Poll on Healthy Aging that's uh, administered through the university and through AARP. And we actually wanted to know, you know, how do people think about dementia? Are they afraid of memory loss? What are they doing? Uh, to, to try to combat the possibility of memory loss. And it turns out about, um, we asked people, you know, what do you think the likelihood is of you developing dementia? Uh, and basically about half the respondents said they thought they were either very or somewhat likely to develop dementia, um, which is a little bit higher. So Ken mentioned a little while ago that if you're, I think, 60 or 65, um, and you're a woman, you have maybe around 30% lifetime risk of uh, developing dementia. For, for men, it's a little bit lower than that. But in general, it seems like people sort of perceive their risk as higher than it actually is. I think probably partly because people, um, it, it's perceived as an illness that you don't want to get. That That's really, um, you know, changes your life in a way and your family's life in a way that you don't want to experience. In clinic, uh, it is uh, definitely is a concern. Sort of ironically, it seems like oftentimes the people who are worried about their memory. So I'm a psychiatrist. In my experience, people worried about their memory frequently actually are uh, experiencing symptoms of depression or anxiety or something else. Kind of ironically, oftentimes people who are experiencing true memory loss don't necessarily perceive it themselves, and it'll be their families who bring them in. Um, but uh, big picture is the concern about memory loss can be kind of an important motivator uh, for people to, you know, control their blood pressure, try to get a little bit more exercise, a little bit more social activity, just because people do uh, seem to, it, it, it is definitely a concern of people as their age and it's something that people perceive um, that, that they really want to avoid, you know, what, what Ken has found. No, I would agree entirely, Donovan. And, and again, I, I, you know, when I talk, I'm a general internist, when I talk with my uh, middle-aged or older patients about cardiovascular risk factor control, um, you know, blood pressure, physical activity, cholesterol, um, I, I do, um, you know, mention that there there does seem to be research that, uh, you know, in addition to decreasing your risk for a heart attack, um, it's 
possible you'll also be, you know, keeping your brain working uh, as it is uh, longer, which is uh, important. So uh, again, I think there there is this balance between, you know, perhaps it will motivate people to um, to address some of these behavioral risk factors, but at the same time, uh, you don't want to get uh, you don't want to get people too focused on the wrong thing if it isn't something that's uh, that's going to affect them uh, down the road. I think you both kind of indirectly answered my last one of my last questions, which was about the value to patients even knowing about preclinical Alzheimer's. But it sounds like, heck, if, if some of the risk factors are modifiable and it doesn't cause too much harm and too much stress, maybe it's, oh, maybe it's an okay thing. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, again, I think some people would argue, well, these are, these are um, modifiable risk factors that every older adult should, uh, yeah. or every yeah. middle-aged adult should be uh, focusing on, you know, whether it, it, if it's the case that, um, doing some of these diagnostics for amyloid or, or tau or others truly motivates some people, um, you know, that could be a get good outcome. Again, the, the downsides are, and again, I don't think we, we didn't talk as much about uh, just the cost, uh, the cost of interventions um, are, are a key issue. You know, the, the interventions, the, at least the um, medication interventions that are being tested are likely to be, you know, quite expensive. These uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies that are um, done in monthly intravenous infusions. So again, the treatments themselves would take a lot of time and and could be uh, burdensome that way. You know, thoughts about in the the ten thousand dollar a year or so uh, kind of um, uh, cost uh, range. So. Uh, again, just this, these trade-offs that we're talking about. If it's a an easy intervention that isn't uh, that isn't expensive, um, less of a concern about the overdiagnosis. If it's very expensive, potentially life-changing or life-modifying um, interventions, then again, I think we we want to be more careful about uh, how we interpret the information. So things can change pretty quick in research. And my last question just pertains to sort of. Since you've published this, it's been about a little over a year or so. Has anything sort of changed in terms of how you think about this? I mean, I think the general framework is uh, is still similar, and the, and the questions. And again, there there are hard questions. They're not uh, these aren't easy. Um, there's not going to be one right answer, and and it is going to, you know, the ultimate uh, um, good uh, outcome is going to depend on lots of these uh, individual issues around cost and and what patients prefer and uh, and things like that. But you know, as you said, Matt, the the developments keep happening quickly. There's um, more research over the last year about a blood test uh, that uh, might help identify um, people with amyloid and tau uh, in their brains. Um, again, if that, that's a significantly less costly intervention than some of the amyloid PET scanning and things like that. So, um, you know, how that's going to play out in terms of, um, again, what, how well can that do at really identifying the um, the high-risk folks. And then there's also um, one of the monoclonal antibodies that's been tested, aducanumab, which uh, the drug company Biogen had uh, had stopped the trials, said it's clear it wasn't working, did some re, uh, reassessment of some of the data and actually think it is um, does have a signal in terms of preventing cognitive decline. And that uh, review of that is actually at the FDA now. And uh, so that actually could... Um, put all of this theoretical stuff we've been talking about uh, front and center with, you know, how if if the FDA does um, approve that, how much will that cost? Who's going to get it? Uh, and it'll sort of uh, have much more uh, real world uh, 
information about uh, who's getting treated, how's it working in the real world, etc. We'll have to update the update this episode next year. I think yeah, exciting things on the horizon. <laughs> well, this has been great. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Langa, and all of you for listening. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as directly from us at capra.med.umich.edu, where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and data products we've created for dementia research. Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www.danlanga.com. Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH or the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon.